Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the 12th chapter of the letter written to the Hebrews, where our focus is going to be uh, the same text we looked at last week. We looked at chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Uh, Our focus this morning is going to be primarily verses 15 through 17, but we'll read the entire thing for context. The verses that are before us this morning are once again verses that really have caused no small amount of terror and fear and trembling in the church of Jesus Christ at large over the many years of her storied existence. And though there most certainly is a warning here, that should and indeed does evoke fear in the hearts of some. However, beloved, I would tell you this morning that the genuine followers of Jesus Christ are not in that group. There are two groups of people being considered here. And within these two groups exists every man, woman, and child of what we would call the visible church. The church as you and I see it. So in the church, in the visible church, there are those who make professions of faith in Jesus Christ, and there are those whose professions prove to be true as they live out their lives in this fallen world, being sanctified, all of it ultimately for their own spiritual good and for the glory of Almighty God. So while One group here is meant to be warned of what will come. The other group here is meant to be reassured of their position with Almighty God by nature of their gracious union with Jesus Christ by faith. We're going to unpack that some more in just a moment as we dig further into the text. I think one of the reasons that Christians or so many Christians quake and are given over to fear and trembling here is because of the erroneous way that this entire book is so often approached. I just talked about it this morning in Sunday school. It's a book that is often referred to in fragments. Right? We've seen this before. We've talked about it before. This book is often quoted out of context, most often to serve as proof text for error. Though sometimes it's used for even a loftier sounding purpose. Fragmented sections of this letter are also often used devotionally. Again, separated entirely from their context for the desired admonishments, encouragements, even rebukes to be made using these texts. I want to say, I, I say that not to discourage devotional time in the word of God, you understand but to remind you of the danger of pulling text away from its context and then applying it in any way that you see fit. So if we're to get this text right and glean from it the desired treasure from the hand of the writer of this letter, which we've seen time and time again is the multifaceted glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, then we must be continually reminded of the context. 
Really, I expounded upon that some last week, so I'm going to be brief here. These Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was originally written, are suffering from some misconceptions about Almighty God and His love for them, as well as the strength that He and He alone can and will provide for them. And the extent to which their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has redeemed them from the power of sin, death, and the devil. They have been under severe persecution. The trials in their lives have begun to weary them. And as the difficulties and the troubles begin to pile on, these people stand on the very brink of proving themselves to be fools, though they had indeed professed to be wise. And this loving under-shepherd of the great shepherd is here now coming alongside of his beloved flock, And he is attempting through pointing them to the true glory of Jesus Christ to clear away the fog that had settled in on their understanding. And beloved, I'm certain that this exhortation here is really one from which we could all benefit as we together trod the way, the difficult way, the narrow way that alone leads to salvation. They were very close to completely missing the point of everything in this life and falling away into foolish and vain religion. And so their shepherd attempts to clear up for them a correct understanding and even a wonderful encouragement to be had from feeling the mighty hand of God applied firmly upon their lives. They are running the race that he, Almighty God himself, has laid out for all of those who are his. They are to focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are to run the race of this life with endurance until they reach their final destination at home in glory. The strength needed for running itself, is given to them by the grace of God as he leads them on their path. Jesus himself ran the race before him and secured their spot at the finish line. And he explains to them the purpose standing behind their suffering. Beloved, we've talked about it many times. It was the loving discipline of their heavenly father. And that word discipline has come to have a a negative connotation associated with it in our own day. We think too often of discipline as simply being punishment. We step outside of the rules. We get caught stepping outside of the rules and so we must pay the price given in the rules. That idea in and of itself has led many astray here. This is positive discipline. This is discipline born not out of the anger or the wrath of Almighty God against our sin, which was of course met out upon Jesus Christ in full, but out of His great love for those who are blessed to be called His own. 
those who have been redeemed through the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. Does God pour out his wrath upon our sin again and again and again? Is that what it means to come under the discipline of the Father? We misstep and he crushes us in order to show us who's in charge. Or was that discipline, was that punishment met out for our sin in full upon Jesus Christ? Is God's anger driving his chastisement of his children? Or is it his mercy and his love? Beloved, answering that question wrongly will lead you to the very place of these Hebrew believers. And again, we're going to unpack it in just a moment. The picture here is that the loving discipline of the Father is designed by the Father for our own spiritual good and for His glory. That's the picture. And we have to see it. We are being weaned from our dependence upon this world and upon everything else for that matter, and we are being prepared for utter dependence upon Him and upon Him alone. We are being prepared for glory. We are being prepared for heaven. We are being prepared to stand in the presence of God. Where we will be with our Lord. We will worship Him in our glorified bodies, completely rid of this flesh and its countless weaknesses and infirmities. And I want you to know that it is the love of God that accomplishes this for us. Your afflictions in this life are designed with your own spiritual good and with God's glory in mind. Therefore, says Christ, therefore, says this Christ-exalting shepherd of the flock of God, strengthen those hands that are hanging down. Strengthen the knees that have become weak. Make straight paths for your feet and lock your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Pursue peace with your neighbors and be set apart for holiness. Looking carefully that you do not miss the grace of God in all of this. Again, there are two kinds of people receiving these words in the context of the visible church, those who are encouraged and who run the race and those who are so wearied through their trials and tribulations that they miss the proverbial forest for the trees and as a result, leave the race altogether. And it is they who are the focus of this final piece of this exhortation this morning in the text that is before us. So let's look together at the Word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read once again Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And again, we will focus primarily on verses 15 through 17. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. 
Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many have become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with his tears. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that has been set before us to come and to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that your spirit would fill us. I pray, Father, that I would handle your word accurately in a way that it is true food for the nourishment of faith within us. And I pray for all of us, Father, that hearing your word, we would be transformed by your word for your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned that at the outset this morning that really many in the Church of Jesus Christ, have tragically misinterpreted this text. And in so doing, they have caused many a sleepless night for even the well-meaning children of God here. And this morning, I'm not going to spend too much of my time laying out all those errors. It is not my hope to terrify the true children of God this morning, or any morning for that matter, but to point you to the wonderful hope that is truly ours in Jesus Christ. Now that's not to say that I hope to strike no fear into any heart. However, if you are responding in fear to the warning here, may it serve to lead you not into indefinite sleeplessness, but towards true repentance and faith, and towards the rest and the joy that are to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. For now... I will just point out to you that the fear is always centered on just a few pieces of this text. And you can probably pick them out, right? Falling short of the grace of God, roots of bitterness defiling many, and of course Esau and his inability to truly repent. Many have held these texts up to prove that indeed salvation can be lost once it has already been granted. Therefore, obviously, the exhortation then would be that you had better not mess this up. You must take measures to guard against falling away from the grace of God, and you had better not succumb to those crafty roots of bitterness. And you had better pray that you do not end up like Esau, who desperately wanted to repent with all of his being, but who had just pushed God too far, and therefore God had turned his back and refused his grace to Esau. And as I said, it's error, right? You've probably heard some of these before, if not all of them. Perhaps you find yourself even thinking along these lines this morning. Beloved, I'm going to tell you that it is critical that you and I get right this exhortation that's before us this morning. It's critical in the way that we live the Christian life. The writer here is very clear in what he says. 
I want to say he's not at all undoing the promises of Jesus Christ here in order to allow some well-meaning folks to slip through his omnipotent hands. We must remember the context. Trials happen. Pain in this life is a reality. Difficulties which even lead to tremendous suffering do exist for the people of God. None of us is exempt. And they are given for our own good. We must be weaned from this world. It is our response to these trials that will tell us very much about the genuineness of of our professions of faith, or at the very least, the maturity of our professions of faith. For those of us who belong to God in and through the perfect person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we carry on. We set our faces like flint upon Jesus, and we run as those who have been filled with the very Spirit of Almighty God. We accept the loving discipline of our Father. We are assured of His great love for us. We are assured of His wonderful providence in our lives. We are assured of His grace, and so we strengthen the hands that hang down. And we put strength in the feeble knees with the precious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, we never stop running to Jesus. We never stop making our way towards home, where our Savior is. Beloved, do you understand? Though we tire... Though often we are tripped up and we stumble, though there are constantly things in our way, though we often, like the psalmist, find ourselves crying out, How long, O Lord, how long? Though we weep and we hurt, we know that our trial is temporary and it's for our own good. We do not fail to grasp the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We do not fail to see the glory of the gospel, and so we run. That's the picture of the faithful here. We're not simply stoics. We're not keeping the stiff upper lips, living as it were as joyless victims of life. We are pressing on towards the goal by the grace of Almighty God, inching ever closer and closer to glory. We're carried along not by our strength, not through our preparation, not through our so-called good intentions, but by the grace of Almighty God, we are carried along through the power of God as He continually proves Himself faithful again and again and again in the lives of every single one of His children. Remember that great cloud of witnesses stands as a testimony to that very fact. That's the joy of this passage in Hebrews. They are a manifest testimony of the perfect faithfulness of Almighty God to bring you from the cra- from cradle to grave to glory. They have run the race. 
They have suffered, they were afflicted, and they finished basking and celebrating in the glory of Jesus Christ. He alone is faithful. Not some of the time, not just for some of his children, but across the broad board, the broad scope of history, and well beyond it, he is faithful to the last. Therefore, shake off your weariness. Shake off your sorrow and trust God by faith. Shake off your guilty fears and live as an heir of eternal life and every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. We are to, rather I should say, we will persevere to the glory of God and our own spiritual good by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, I want to tell you, that is the first and foremost thing that we have to see here. This is the first group of people being addressed by the writer here and thus encouraged in the Christian life. But as I mentioned, it's only half the picture. He addresses another group existing within the church. Those for whom trials and temptations and difficulties in this life lead to vastly different results than what has just been described. Those who, though they have saw fit to live under the guise of a profession of faith, for any number of reasons, things like the respect of men, the allurement of perceived morality, even the pride of being known as generational members of a particular part of God's family. Any number of reasons, really, they respond very differently apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than pursuing peace with their neighbors, they often satisfy themselves in stirring up dissension and causing strife. Rather than pursuing holiness by locking on to Jesus Christ alone, being set apart by nature of their union with Him, they work to promote their own apparent holiness. They seek to glorify their own names. They seek to leave their own legacy. Many can do so for a long time even. Some are even apparently so self-deceived that they are unaware of the insufficiency of what it is that they are willing to call biblical faith. And so the real determiner for them never manifests itself definitively until the heat of life is turned up a notch. Until the refining furnace of trial comes. Until the pain and the suffering begin. Until the affliction set in and they begin to grow weary. They begin to wonder whether really any of it is worth any of the trouble. They begin to grasp for something to bring them some relief. And grasping for anything other than the precious grace of Almighty God in Jesus Christ, they neglect the only relief that can ever truly be found. Most seek it in the form of any escape that they can get their hands on. Right? Alcohol, drugs, pornography, infidelity, getting lost in the fantasy world of of television and books and movies. Really, anything that we can make an idol will do. 
They just need to find something to throw themselves into. They need to find something to numb the pain. They pursue some form, some cheap form of pleasure, and they get lost in it. Now, maybe you're thinking, pleasure? Steve, is, is, am I hearing you right? Are you really saying pleasure is an idol? I mean, you're the one who's always talking about how you hate joyless Christianity and how it shouldn't exist. And how it seems to be a a complete contradiction of terms. Now are you so brazen to stand up there behind that giant pulpit and tell us that we're not to have pleasure in this life? That we're not to pursue it? Are you going to tell us that the pursuit of joy and pleasure is wrong? Well, of course not, beloved. But you see... This is one of those places where, as they say, the rubber truly meets the road. I think that you should pursue the highest form of pleasure that you can possibly reach in this life. In fact, I think that you should pursue it with your entire being, with your whole heart. But you see, your highest form of pleasure in this life simply cannot be found outside of the merciful God who alone can give it. It cannot be found apart from the unfathomable grace of God. The Westminster Confession, or the Westminster Catechism rather, states as much, states this in the very first question. It asks that question. A lot of us already know it, right? What is the chief end of man? The answer? To glorify God... And to enjoy Him forever. You see, joy, real joy, real pleasure exists only through faith in Jesus Christ. The fleeting, tawdry trinkets of this world, those things that the world is used to stimulate or to simulate rather this pleasure, cannot be compared to the real thing. Real pleasure comes from real and lasting peace of mind. It comes when you realize fully that your only comfort in both life and in death is that you are not your own, but in fact, you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Joy, comfort, peace, rest, thankfulness, All of them come when you understand what it means that you have been truly purchased through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That you are not your own. That you are not autonomous. You belong to another who has fully satisfied for all of your sins and so redeemed you from all the power of the devil that apart from the will of your loving Heavenly Father, not a single hair can fall. From your redeemed head. All things must work together for your salvation. Beloved, do you understand the weight of that? Do you live like someone who understands the weight of that? Is that not exactly the point? That the writer is making for the redeemed in Jesus Christ? He's saying, forget your weariness. 
Forget your pain. Forget your struggle. You will persevere because you have been redeemed. You will be comforted with the only comfort that will actually chase away your fears. The wrath of Almighty God against your sin has been fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Now, all things must work together for your salvation. God will move heaven and earth because he owns you. You have been redeemed. You have been bought, purchased. You belong to him. You understand, you're not being crushed into despair. You are being preserved progressively sanctified to the glory of God. You are being made and molded and formed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are being prepared for eternity and glory. Forget bitterness in the face of your difficulty. Your God is lovingly preparing for you treasure that cannot even be measured with this world's cheap value system. What you have in Jesus Christ cannot be taken away ever through any circumstance. Praise God. You do not belong to this world. You are a pilgrim like Abraham, ever inching your way towards eternal bliss where you will be with your rightful owner. All of this is true. But you see, all of this is not found apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Counterfeit faith does not respond this way under trial. It shows its true colors. It wears out. It must eventually stop running. It clenches its teeth and raises puny fists towards the heavens. It must eventually curse God and die during its affliction. Do you understand? False professions enter the fires of affliction and all is proved to be dross. There's nothing precious left to refine. And so eventually bitterness shows up and it replaces any supposed pleasure that was found in God and his people. And bitterness becomes the new driving force in their lives. It's God's fault. Have you heard that before? If not out loud in your own mind, how could God do this to me? Finding no pleasure, finding no rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, it must be sought elsewhere. These people find a fleeting form of it in death traps like fornication. Like the writer says, they prove to be profane. They prove to be like Esau. Let me ask you something, beloved. Do you understand why it is that Esau is mentioned here by name? I mean, why him? He entered the testing ground of of affliction and all was lost. 
He was the one who stood in line to inherit the covenant blessing of his father Isaac, the blessing of his great-grandfather Abraham, the promise of land and of descendants, the promise of actually being called the people of God. The one from whom would come the promised seed, the eldest son of the son of promise, Isaac. The one that Isaac loved so dearly. And that he wanted like nothing else to go contrary to the prophecy that had been given to him through his wife. That the elder would indeed serve the younger. Even knowing what he knew, he desperately wanted to give the covenant blessing to his most favored son. Right? You undoubtedly know the story. What happens? Esau comes in famished from a long period of hunting in the field and he enters the tent of his brother, undoubtedly following his carnal appetite with the smell of stew wafting out of the area from where his brother is. And he's on the brink of starvation and so he comes in and he begs his brother Jacob for some stew. He says to him, give me the stew, brother, for I am weary. And I'll die. His hunger has him thinking that his own death is probably imminent. And he does not want to suffer for another moment. And so he begs his brother Jacob for some relief. What does Jacob do? He says, okay, Esau, the stew for your blessing. You understand? The stew for your inheritance. Sell me your birthright. And what does Esau do? Does he say, brother, how can you ask for such a thing? How can I despise the promise to be called the child of the Most High God? What greater relief could I find than being called the legitimate son of Almighty God Himself? What is even my life when compared to that? No, he doesn't. He says to Jacob, look, I am about to die. What is this birthright to me? What indeed? It's at the brink of death that his birthright would have proved to be more valuable than all the stew in Canaan. And the word of God says in Genesis chapter 25, verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. Fast forward to the end of Isaac's life. When through much deception and cunning, Jacob goes into his father and he actually receives his brother's blessing. The covenant promises of Almighty God. And Esau realizes what has taken place and he cries through his clenched and gritted teeth. A great and bitter cry, we are told, as he says, Father, oh Father, do you have no blessing for me? Bless me, Father. Esau realized the value of that blessing in land alone. And so he pleaded with his earthly father through his tears to have it back. At least some of it. But it was done. Beloved, do you see the point here? Listen to me. Esau was a sensual beast. He lived for this life. 
for the here and now and for that alone. So much so that the covenant promises of Almighty God still held no real value for him when held up even next to a bowl of stew. He lived for this world above everything else. His pleasure was the fleeting pleasure of this world, filling his belly. And he did not get upset about his birthright until he understood that it held some kind of earthly, tangible value. He did not grieve his own foolishness. He was not sorry about his sin. He was sorry about the loss of worldly goods. So what did he do upon realizing that he had been foolish? He did what any worldling would do. He did what you and I are tempted to do. He shifted all of the blame to someone else. And so he hated Jacob. His bitterness led him to even plot the murder of his own brother because it had to be Jacob's fault. Esau found no repentance because he only sought what held value to him in the here and now. He even sought it through his tears. But he wouldn't find it because for Esau, there was no pleasure in the promises of Almighty God. Do you understand? So you say to yourself, well, what's the point? Well, I mentioned to you there are two kinds of people in the visible church. Those who profess but who cannot and who will not persevere, who seek pleasure wherever it may be found simply for pleasure's sake, to satisfy carnal appetites, those who have become far too easily pleased and who will gladly accept a cheap imitation in place of the real thing. There are those who come what may never stop running to Jesus. Those to whom fleeing into the arms of the Savior awards pleasure untold. Pleasure that is simply unrivaled by any forms or cheap copies of pleasure that the world and its devil have to offer. So, beloved, it's, it's a call to ask yourself a difficult question. What brings you pleasure? It's a simple question, really. What matters to you the most? And I mean this in the extreme sense. I'm not saying that we can be without sin, that we can somehow be perfect in this. That's not, that's not the point here. When I say what brings you pleasure, this is what I mean. What matters to you the most? Is it keeping up appearances? Or is it the love of God so manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ? You see, where your pleasure is, is where your heart will be. What or who you belong to is made manifest by who or what you run to when the heat gets turned up. Are you content to be a a nice cubic zirconia, able to fool even the master jeweler's eye here on earth? Content to have people speak well of you, to even look up to you, to appreciate you? Are you a diamond in the rough? Though many times you appear to be just another stone, 
You are being chipped away. You are being cut. You are being heated up to reflect the brilliance of God's glory on earth. One who will stand at the foot of the throne of the Lamb of God and find the greatest pleasure in worshiping the one who redeemed you from this world and all of its fading glory. The one who spilled his blood to satisfy the wrath of God for your sin for eternity. Which one are you? One finds only fear in a passage like this one. And that always leads to indifference. The other finds hope eternal. And yet another reason to joyfully cry out in worship. Beloved, may we be the ones who never stop running to Jesus, to the glory of Almighty God. Amen? Let's pray.